Hey everyone, welcome to the Modern Patient Experience. I'm James Furbush, head of marketing for Q Squared, where we make it easy for patients to pay their bills. On this show, I interview executives from hospitals, health systems, and provider groups, physician leaders, and digital health pioneers. Our goal is to equip you with new ideas and tactical advice to give your patients the best clinical, financial, and operational experience you can. Welcome back to another episode of the Modern Patient Experience by Q Squared. I'm your host, James Furbush. My guest this week is John Schufeld, MD. John is a emergency medicine physician by practice, but he has also started and launched numerous companies within the healthcare space. Most recently, MeMD, which he sold to Walmart, and Tribal MD. John, welcome to the program. Thanks, James. Welcome to, uh, happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, no, it's, it's so great. So the reason I wanted to have you on uh, the program is because for as long as I've known you, going back to my days at Athena Health, the thing that has impressed me most um, is, I guess, you know, for lack of a better way, it's, it's sort of your entrepreneurial spirit, which I know, you know, that is a, a topic near and dear to your heart, but you know, I, I think there's a difference between sort of having an entrepreneurial spirit and then actually acting upon it and actually following through and, and doing stuff. And, and so I wanted to kind of talk to you about how you see the role of entrepreneurship being able to impact the patient experience in, in healthcare. And so I kind of just want to start there. I mean, how, you know, can you go into a little bit of your, your background and, and sort of talk about how you got the entrepreneurial, how, how did you sort of develop the sort of entrepreneurial spirit that you carry into the world? Thanks. The, you know, I think I was, I think I've been an entrepreneur since I was young. I mean, I remember doing all things kids do, mowing lawns, shoveling snow. I had a candle making business and all those things I did, but I always started things where I saw a need or perceived the need, often I was wrong, and, and looked at ways to solve a problem. And so I would see, see a problem and say, all right, so for example, in you know, the early 90s, I started these urgent care centers. And at the time, there weren't really many around, if any. And so I thought, perhaps in emergency medicine, I thought, gosh, I don't, you know, these people who come there with these minor things, they shouldn't be in the emergency department. It's cost them way too much money. And frankly, the ED should be for really sick and dying people who are critically ill or injured, which is what I like doing. And so I started these urgent care centers with that goal in mind to offload the ED. And I don't know if it ever really has offloaded the emergency departments. I worked yesterday and we were literally, you know, it was like the Tet Offensive. We were overrun with patients for the, all the hours I was there and I'm sure all day long. And it's been kind of nonstop in EDs. However, I can only imagine it would be worse but for the urgent cares in the area. And I'm in an area now where there's, you know, you can't spit without hitting an urgent care. So I can only imagine what the EDs would look like, but for those urgent cares. So I'd always see a need, think of if there's a way to solve it, wait around for a day and think, okay, someone else has got to be doing this, but I can't be the only one who's seen this. And then say, oh, the hell with time I try to fix it. And, and that was, I'd be off to the races. So, yeah, so it's, I mean, it's interesting. So when you started, urgent care, I mean, this is back in the early 90s, urgent care was not the sort of same, it wasn't as widely accepted right now, it's, it's you expect an urgent care facility 
that's almost more surprising when there isn't one close by. But back then, that was a very, I mean, that was not a common. So can you sort of go into, I'd love to just sort of dive into, you know, how did you, how did you really sort of pinpoint the need in the market and then really sort of follow through because that initial urgent care facilities that you created, I mean, it grew to be a 60, what was it, a 60 or 55 something location, which is really impressive for, for, you know, back then. And so how did you sort of go from identifying that need to, to then like building that company? So the challenge was when, you know, when we first kind of came up with this concept, there weren't any urgent cares in Phoenix. And so when I went to the health plan and said, hey, I got this great idea. It's called urgent care. We're going to do this. They looked at me and said, we never heard of that. We, we don't know how to contract with you. And when I went to the malpractice carriers, they were like, well, yeah, you know, we can get malpractice. We on a provider basis. I said, well, that's not going to work. These providers are going to be moderately transient. They'll probably work a couple of years and go to their own thing. And so we really had to kind of forge ahead in a couple different areas. They were really untouched. But, you know, for the first one, it was making every mistake in the book, was finding the space, building it out. And I thought a lot like how we move patients to the emergency department. So it looked like an emergency department. We had a port to share with ambulances could drive under, although we didn't take ambulances, cars could drive under it. We really operated like a small emergency department, ran blood tests, did x-rays, what have you. Certainly not to the same extent, but... You know, when it started out, I always laugh. I think our first patient for about the first two months was a dog who wandered in. And then all of a sudden it was uh, got to be fall and winter and the snowbirds came back to Phoenix and all of a sudden we were busy. And it really took off from there. But it was really just iterating as we as we went along, you know, making mistakes, solving them and, and kept moving. And that process never really stopped. So I did it for 17 years. We grew to 60 centers in seven, in seven states. Uh, about $100 million in revenue, and it, we literally iterated along the way where we'd identify a problem, think, okay, how can we solve it, and then work to solve it. You know, we were very early in the EHR world as well. I think we had our first EHR in the early, very early 2000s, and really worked to streamline that to make it as provider-centric as possible, while at the same time capturing all the data and allowing patients to enter their own data into the medical record. So, again, probably a little bit before the time. It worked very well for us. Yeah, and so it sounds, you know, it sounds like the the common thread sort of is identifying and solving problems. Is that sort of how you see entrepreneurship at its very fundamental level, or or how do you sort of think about entrepreneurship? You know, as it relates to you and, and sort of your career. I mean, for me, it's been seen. A- seen a problem, again, or a perceived problem, thinking, is there a way to solve this? So, for example, a long time ago in probably 2013, I started a business called Healthy Bid. And Healthy Bid was a reverse auction for patients who said, I need a non-emergent surgical procedure. I need my gallbladder out. I need my nose job or what have you. And they put it out to bid, and surgeons in the area would theoretically bid on it and say, look, I can get you in the surgery center on, you know, three Tuesdays from now. I'm a board-certified ex." Here's my credentials, and I linked the patient to the provider. And in my mind, this made it, this put the patients in the driver's seat where providers would come to them. It never took off. I think today it may have, you know, probably would capture some more uh, users. But in 2013, it was just probably a little too early. But again, for me, it was I saw a problem. We wanted to give the power back to the patients, and this way they were in control of 
who they went to and they weren't searching for physicians. Physicians were searching for patients and providing the best care at the most affordable cost. A lot of this was high deductible or patients who were going to pay cash and it was, you know, cosmetic surgery. Yeah, that that's fascinating. Yeah, you would think a, I don't know, two-sided network that connects patients and, and I mean, because that's always still a challenge, right? Like if I need an elective surgery or something like that, and, you know, I have to like go to my health plan and figure out who's in my network and are they high cost or low cost or, or what that might be. It, it's still a difficult process to figure out, like to go from, I need this to like someone who can, a physician who can help me solve that, that problem. So what did you, I mean, it sounds like obviously, so not everything has been a success. I mean, failure has probably played some role in your journey. I'm curious, can you talk about sort of the role that, that failure has played in, in sort of your, your journey and sort of entrepreneurship? Yeah, I mean, this will sound relatively counterintuitive or maybe even stupid, but, but failures, failures played a, at a large uh, part of my life, and I always would laugh, and it's not untrue. I grew up failing, and so, you know, for me, failure was just like another day, like, oh, yeah, okay, I'll do it again this way. So I never really got emotionally attached to the success because I would so often fail. And, and I think that was important, at least for me as an entrepreneur, because many of the things and many of the paths you take don't go anywhere. And so if you don't pivot, um, you're stuck. If you see failure as a hard stop, you're stuck. You know, there's an old Chinese proverb I always say, fall down seven, get up eight. And for me, that sort of belief system is integral to entrepreneurship because you have to be resilient enough to say, I'm going to get the crap beat out of me, I know, and this is going to be, but I'm going to, I'm going to push through. And I don't always tell people, I'm one of those people, you know, in a fight, you'll have to kill me to get me to stop. Now, there are some times when it's important to know when to stop and, you know, know when you're throwing good money after bad. And I'm sure I've thrown some good money after bad over the years. But I think if there's ever sort of a solution or, or a vision, I try to iterate my way out of these things that could be failures, but for either I'm too stupid to quit or resilience. And sometimes it's both. Yeah. So do you have a process for, I guess, identifying ideas, executing on them, and, and even maybe also recognizing when something is not going to work? Um, I, I'm kind of curious about how, how you sort of go about testing ideas and, and trying to figure out is there a need in the market for this? You know, can I make this work? And and then maybe even when you get to that point where you're like, okay, maybe this is not going to work. I'm curious about about that. So yeah, I'll give you. I'll use MeMD as an example. MeMD was a telehealth company I started in 2010, literally two weeks after leaving Nextcare, and it was one of those for me moments where you know I came to realization of. A couple of realizations. One, in the summer in Arizona and a lot of the places the allergic care were located, the patient volume would go way down. And so we had providers sitting around, they were high cost, of course, and I wanted to keep them busy and I wanted to get revenue. So that was fact one. Fact two was much of the world, education and banking, for example, were going to becoming digitized. I thought, well, God, if they can digitize that, maybe we can digitize healthcare. Now, there's already another company, Teladoc, out there doing this pretty much phone only at that point. I'd never heard of Teladoc. And so I started asking people, would you see a provider online? So I always had this mantra of, what do you do if you don't have a friend that's a physician? So I would get calls for 
still get calls all the time. Hey, what do you think about this? Can you call in a prescription? And I'd always say, God, what do you, you know, what would people do if they had a friend that was a doc? And kind of those three things coalesce and let's start a virtual health company. Now, again, today, virtual health is, you know, it's like, yeah, of course, duh. It's, it's yeah. a given. At the time, health plans weren't compensating for it. A lot of people I talked to were like, no, I'd never do that. And, and it was a lot of kind of hard stops as far as people would say, no, that's not for me. But there was a, there was a minority of people, and they were mostly in the 20s and early 30s, would say, yeah, totally. If I didn't have to go to the see a physician, if I could do it this way online, count me in. So then we went to a direct-to-consumer model where we went out and sold directly to patients, which was great, but it was slow-moving. So then we started selling to health plans and large employers, which worked. And now with COVID, you know, I always say COVID probably pushed the telehealth business ahead probably three to four years in acceptability. I mean, we're going to get there one way or another, but COVID made it, COVID went from being a nice to have to a must have. And that really accelerated the the urgent care, I'm sorry, the uh, telemedicine space. Yeah, I feel like COVID accelerated a lot of things related to healthcare and having to you know, make drastic changes that maybe not even drastic changes, but just make changes that were, were, you know, I think in some ways you could probably justify putting off because it's, you know, these are good to haves versus like need to haves. And I think COVID kind of accelerated that, that sort of need to have in, in a lot of ways. So, you know, it, it, it's funny to hear, you know, you talk about being on the early cusp of, of urgent care, which is sort of a, a, you know, really common, you know, delivery model these days, telehealth, early days of that. And now that sort of commonly accepted, you know, I'm kind of curious, how do you see sort of the role of of entrepreneurship and that way of thinking? How do you see that impacting the the patient experience? Because those two things are like very foundational aspects of the the patient experience in healthcare, right? Like being able to go to like a walk-in clinic and get affordable care for minor um, things. Now being able to just sort of dial up and, and do a telehealth appointment with, you know, I think I had an earache and I I called up, did a telehealth, and it was with a physician in like Alabama, you know, and uh, and it's like it's kind of crazy. To think it's like I'm, I'm being seen by a doctor, you know, twenty states away from me, and it's it's not a you can take for granted like how amazing that kind of is in some ways as a patient. And, and so I'd love to just hear you. I mean, how do you think about sort of entrepreneurship and, and as it impacts the patient experience? I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's integral to the patient experience in as much as when I look at all the advances pretty much across everything, but in all, particularly in healthcare, well, really particularly in everything, all the advances we've made as a society, the vast, vast majority is due to Though that some goofball with some crazy idea that everybody said this can never be done, this has been done before, we've never done it this way, we've always done it this way, who just said, you know, I think I've got something here. And it's these small little steps that people take initially, and I always call it standing on the shoulders of giants, where they look at what's been done in the past, that, you know, I think I can see farther over the horizon this time, let me try this thing. It's never been done before, but I think I may have a way to do it, and they pull it off. And it becomes, again, from this crazy idea to this massive company or to this 
but but in either way, people learn as and iterate as they go. So if it doesn't work this time for their next adventure, for their next entrepreneurial vision and idea, maybe it'll work a little better. So I think for the patient experience, for consumerism and healthcare, you know, entrepreneurial efforts are integral to moving the ball forward. Yeah, and are, and are there things that you're keeping your eye on right now that are potential? I mean, you don't want to give anything away, give someone a their own business idea, but I'm kind of curious. I mean, if for someone, you know, you who seems to be able to keep at least that one eye over the horizon, you know, I'm kind of curious what your what's catching your eye right now or what's intriguing you. I mean, so so here's what I would work on, you know, if I were if I were out to do it again, and then maybe I would focus on two things. One, I focus on behavioral health. You know, there's a lot of folks with some significant behavioral health issues. When I started MD, frankly, it was for behavioral health issues because I thought, okay, there's a statement of seeing behavioral health professionals. Maybe people could do it from home. It would they'd be more comfortable doing it. I would try to refer patients in the emergency department to psychiatrists or other behavioral health specialists, and was always just basically no. There was just nobody available. That's why MD started. So I would focus on behavioral health, both inpatient and outpatient, and then I'd really focus on the use of AI. And, and this is not rocket science. I mean, AI will be the driving force of a way to disseminate quality healthcare to the masses inexpensively. And so even back in the next care days, we didn't have AI, but we were very algorithmic based. If this, you know, we basically use a prediction machine, if this, then that. And we try to predict which patients with which complaints were coming in at which times, and we staff accordingly. But we went so far as to say, look, if you're coming in with this, we're pretty sure you're going to require this, this, and this test, or maybe no test at all. And so we would build all the electronic medical record for the provider prospectively and say, okay, here's what a good chart looks like for a patient with this complaint. You can erase it all. It's all good. But if it fits, this will save you five minutes of charting time. But now if you add AI into it and you put and you have the patient go through an AI algorithm prospectively, now all of a sudden the provider has a pretty reasonable chance of getting the right diagnosis just based on the AI. Then, then the provider walks in and she says, you know, I see Mrs. Jones, you're here for X, Y, Z. Let me ask you a few more questions. And then she goes, wow, you know what? Both the algorithm and I think you probably have X. Here's our plan. And then the AI spits out what the current the state of the art plan is for patients with whatever disease they both come up with together. So all of a sudden the patient interaction is shortened, the documentation is shortened and improved, and the provider can move on to the next patient, thereby is acting as a force, AI is acting as a force multiplier to see more patients but still get the same or better quality. I mean, that's where that's where the system has to go and that's where it is going. You know, I'll give you an example, I owned a teleradiology company for a number of years. And then I heard this company in Israel that was doing plain film readings for, for a dollar for chest x-rays, long bones. And I thought, gosh, we're charging between 9 and $11 for that same read. I see over the horizon, again, no rocket science, but I see where this is going to go. So I sold the company because I knew that in a short amount of time, plain film radiology and anything digitizable will be done by AI. And, and that's where, we're, that's where we're, we are really heading right now, and, and it, which is great. It should be. Yeah, and I think like the AI and looking at like radiology images is such a perfect example because there's such a huge amount of data that you could feed in to identify, I mean, something like pneumonia or 
you know, the, these things that, you know, a, a human would, would kind of look at, there is enough data out there to sort of build those algorithms when it comes to definitely like images, but I would think within like an, e an EMR and, and these other data sets, you know, there's, there's a lot of data and power in um, using AI as, as a tool for, for clinicians to sort of, to do exactly what, what you said. Yeah. It's, you know, I always use the, the black cab example in London, you know, if, the, if you're a black cab driver in London, it's about a three year preparatory time and it's thousands of hours of studying to become a black cab driver in, in London. And they're highly, or they were highly paid, highly respected. They knew everything about the city. And then all of a sudden, poof, the iPhone comes out with mapping. And all of a sudden, you know, everybody is a, can drive a black cab because with the push of a button, you get on Waze or Google Maps and you know exactly what the black cab driver knows. And even better, you know the traffic pattern that you should go to because in real time, it's monitoring traffic patterns, which the black cab drivers can't do. And, and literally in the blink of an eye, put them out of business. Now, it didn't really put them out of business, but much like cab drivers here with Uber and Lyft, it's a different world right now. And that's really what, that's where healthcare is going. Yeah, it's a different game. It, it's funny, I think, is it like the black cab, the, the test that they have to take, it's regarded as like one of the hardest tests like on the planet for humans totally. to take. That's really funny, but no, it's a good point. It's a good, good analogy to to draw. So what advice would you give to people, you know, or, or healthcare professionals working in like larger organizations? Because I think, you know, there is sort of a perception of, like you said, right, where it's the ones who are maybe have a goofy idea or, or have a different type of dream. We think of that sort of those people kind of going off to, to kind of do their thing. Um, but do you have advice for people who are working in, say, larger organizations that want to improve the patient experience, whether it's reducing like times in the weight room or, or things like that. Do you have advice for people in larger organizations, how they can take sort of that entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial mindset? It's a tough word and apply it to their own organization and, and their role to sort of improve uh, the experience that they're giving to patients. So, you know, I, I do in the sense that, I guess that goes down two pathways. The first pathway is if you want to go out and do it by yourself, but are working in a large organization, make sure you haven't signed some sort of agreement or contract that anything you develop while working in this organization belongs to the organization. In other words, you own the IP that you do outside of work. Most organizations don't allow you to do that. And so I would be very careful about that and, and get some guidance beforehand. Then if on the other hand, you want to move the organization that you're working for into this new area, then I just think it takes persistence and basically putting your head down and being the constant force of change, which can be, you know, you worked at Athena in Norbeck Athena is, and as entrepreneurial as Jonathan Bush was and is, you know, that's, I'm sure even that was staring about. And so it's hard making these incremental changes of large companies, unless you have the blessing of someone from the top. Starting from the bottom is difficult, but it's certainly, certainly been done all the time. I've had, you know, a lot of companies where, Somebody suggests, hey, John, wouldn't it be cool if? And then I'm like, oh, man, that really would be cool. Thanks. And then we work on it together or they work on it and totally own it. Yeah, that's awesome. And so I want to just, uh, you know, jump back real quick. So, you know, you kind of mentioned a couple of things that you're keeping, keeping an eye on. But, you know, I'm kind of curious, you know, where you go 
you know, you're someone who you're a doctor, you're a lawyer, you have an MBA, you know, where do you go to find inspiration, you know, for either things that you want to do or, or just, or just in, in general, like where, where do you go to get inspiration and, and, and kind of keep your mind fresh? So I'm, I'm, I'm a constant reader slash listener, you know, thank God for Audible because now I can read while running and read while working out. So thank God for that. So I, I do spend a lot of time listening and reading the books. I go back to school often. I just really started another program. And so I've already learned some things in that. I'm like, oh, God, that's pretty cool. But I always think of education as putting on a new pair of glasses. And education can just be picking up a book and reading it. But I can't count the number of times I've read something. And I thought, God, how did I not know that? That is so damn obvious. And I'm an idiot. How did I not know this? And then it launches me down a path. Maybe the path is a new business. Maybe the path is a new perspective. You know, Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, you realize and you read about the challenges Victor Frankl faced while in a, in a Nazi concentration camp and what he witnessed. And yet he was able to come out of that with this perspective that he had. And I always think, well, God, if he could come out of that horrible, horrible years in that concentration camp where he lost his family and all his friends and all these people he cared for as a physician and still have that perspective, and with my little challenges in life, you know, I will be damned if I'm going to complain and whine about them. And it's, it's things like that. Yeah, that, that's so good. I mean, perspective really is everything. I think like, uh, I try to remind myself of that like every day, right? It's like when I, I mean, because it's so easy sometimes to have that mindset where you just get bogged down and kind of complain and, and then, you know, but then you look around, and you're like, oh my God, like, I'm so fortunate. I have all these like wonderful things and blessings in my life. And uh, sort of keep that perspective is, is, is really important. Well, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate that I work in an emergency department and on the reservation sometimes, but in a inner city others. And so for example, just yesterday, it was a zoo. And every day I walk out of the emergency department, literally, I'm like, thank God. I mean, a lot of these patients, their best day is a hundred times worse than my worst day. And knowing that, you think, what literally could I ever complain about? I mean, it's pathetic. And so I, I try to do my best not to whine and complain about these trivialities that for the folks I take care of and that the honor I take care of would be a blessing. And, you know, here I'm complaining about them. I'm like, you know, shut up, John. So anyway. Yeah. Awesome. Well, John, this has been uh, such a good conversation. I want to thank you for making the time to to speak with us about kind of the role of, of entrepreneurship in healthcare and how it can impact the patient experience. And so, you know, thank you for, for making the time and, and sharing uh, some insights and, and stories with us. Thanks, James. I'm honored to be included. So thank you. Awesome. All right, John, take care. And until next time, it was a pleasure. Thanks.